Well, let's turn back to John chapter 7 to pick up where we left off last time. John chapter 7, verses 14 to 36. Jesus has, after all, gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, not his brother's way, to win a following for himself by dazzling the crowds with miracles, but his way, in private, to win glory for his Father. And it continues in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking from myself. The one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered him, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Stop judging by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come from myself. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Therefore, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am going, you cannot come. 
Well, if you let that passage close, it'd be a great help to me if you would find it again, page 893 in the Church Bibles, John chapter 7 from verse 14. Glorious God, yourself impart light of light from God proceeding. Open every mind and heart, help us by your Spirit's pleading. Amen. Well, if you are fairly new to us today, let me welcome you to the weekly meeting of the Edinburgh God-Bothering Society, a room full of people who believe that we have found God and who would love you to find him too. Perhaps that makes us the cringiest kind of Christian, and yet you're here. Sometimes people come to church because they've been invited by a friend and they just can't find a polite way out of it. They can't wait to escape and never see us again. More often, though, people come to church because there is an age-old longing in the human soul to know the one who is not like us, the one who made us, who we were made for. Perhaps you've been here for months now, years even, And there are things that Jesus says that you just can't get on board with. The way he talks so absolutely about right and wrong, about heaven and hell, about sex or money or marriage. The thought of going all in with Jesus on those things just seems too much, too extreme for you. And yet you keep coming. Somehow you're drawn to know the living God, and you wish he would make himself plainer, make it easier for you to find him and decide once and for all. Well, today we get to hear Jesus himself pleading with another bunch of God-botherers, not entirely unlike us. They're also convinced they have found God, that they know God. And yet the big theme of this whole unit of John's gospel is that God has, in fact, sent someone from the heart of heaven to find them, to bring them back to himself. Because it is possible to go looking for God in a way that can never, ever actually find him. There are three big, repeated ideas in this passage. Hopefully you diggers found them all this morning. There's an idea of Jesus being sent, being from someone else. Did you spot that repeatedly? And then eight times we're told about what people know, what they think at least that they know about Jesus and what sort of person truly comes to know things about God. And then finally, seven times, we get the word seek. All over the passage, people are searching, searching for Jesus and not always in a positive way. Here is a crowd who knows the God of the Bible, but what does Jesus say in verse 28? Him, the God at the heart of it all, you do not know. Here are the God-botherers of his day, crowding Jerusalem for a religious feast, the ones who have found God. And what does Jesus warn them? In verse 34, there will come a time when you will seek me 
and not find me. Where I am, in the heart of heaven's love, you cannot come. And that stings, doesn't it? The passage ends in verse 36 with these confused crowds repeating that same warning to themselves word for word. What can he mean? So this is a passage then about how to find God, or perhaps more precisely, it's a passage about how not to find God. Remember, John has written this gospel to a world of highly educated, Bible-literate, Greek-speaking Jews and friends of the Jewish community, converts from the Jewish world to the Christian world. And those who are cautiously on the edge of that world, just dipping their toes into the water, searching for God. And the big section of this book that we're in now lets us watch as the wheels apparently fall right off Jesus' public ministry to Israel. And as we do that, as we watch, John is explaining one very worrying thing to his Greek-speaking, Jewish-friendly audience. He's explaining why Jesus' own, his own Jewish brothers, rejected him. Why they could not believe that their Christ, their saving king, was a man like this. And so there's a pattern that we'll see today, which we'll then see repeated in the second half of the chapter. Jesus teaches publicly in Jerusalem. That then prompts a massive, confused debate over where on earth Jesus is from, or in Jesus' terms, who he is from. And then both times the section ends with the religious authorities looking to arrest Jesus. There's their response. I think if we spot that pattern, it's a great help in breaking this big chapter down because the themes and the thoughts are very repetitive all throughout it. They're very similar. And yet John's message to his readers today is quite straightforward. Do not try to find God this way. Friends, don't make that mistake. Don't go looking for God this way. Here is why then Jesus' own missed out on the one God sent to bring them home to himself. So don't let it trouble you, he's saying to his readers, when you see religious people making the same mistake about Jesus today. But whatever you do, don't fall into the trap. Three points then this morning as we work through the first half of the chapter. Wonderfully, there is a way to find God, but only through one who knows God, and time is running out to receive him. First then, in verses 14 to 24, there is a way to find God. Notice the astonishment that kicks it all off. The crowd in Jerusalem just cannot believe that a man like Jesus would have so much to say about who God is. Remember, brand Jesus, the Jesus brand, has not been performing very well. He refused to come and dazzle the crowds and stem that hemorrhaging tide of disciples the way his brothers wanted him to. No miracles, no glory-seeking, no brand refresh. Instead, some way into the feast, he goes into the temple courts and simply teaches people about God. 
But here's the problem. Jesus has never been to Cornhill. He doesn't have a theology degree from a prestigious rabbinical school. He simply dropped out of nowhere. And yet here is this ordinary, humble man teaching in the temple the way some learned rabbi might teach, which prompts the key question in verse 15, where on earth has Jesus come from? How can this guy have so much learning when he's never studied? And Jesus' answer to that over this chapter is the claim that separates every human soul for all eternity. Verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 17, 18, I'm not speaking from myself. I am not from myself. I am from God. Verse 28, I have not come from myself. He who sent me is true. I know him, verse 29, because I've come from him. He sent me. You see, who is Jesus? He is the one sent from the Father to come and find us. And that sending is not just some kind of missionary sending, being sent into the world in time. The introduction to this book tells us that this sending goes far deeper. Jesus is the Son sent eternally from the Father, God flowing from the heart of God who belongs at the Father's breast. And so Jesus doesn't need to go to Cornhill in order to tell the world who God is and what he's like and how to find him, because for him, this is first-hand knowledge. When I speak, verse 16, the one whose heart I flow from speaks. When I speak, verse 18, I don't need to look for glory of my own, because from all eternity, all I've cared about is the glory of my Father, and that's why I don't come to Jerusalem, my brother's way, chasing the crowds, building the brand. No, all I care about is bringing people to my Father, his glory. And if that is true, then do you see how an encounter with Jesus Christ must be profoundly different to any other experience we'll ever have? Here is the only person we will ever meet who only cares about the truth. Somebody whose words are profoundly, ultimately trustworthy because he has no other agenda, no self-seeking. And so the question is, are they true, his words? How can we know that Jesus is from God as he claims to be? that everything he teaches and everything he is flows from heaven itself. Well, Jesus tells us the answer to that in verse 17. There is a way to find God, but I wonder if we'll like it. Because it's not about our intellect or whether we've learned to fit all the Bible together as knowledgeably as the rest of the people in our small groups. It's not about finding the killer piece of evidence that will finally persuade us or having some sort of spiritual experience that brings us enlightenment. No, according to Jesus, 
It's all about where our hearts are as we look for God. It's all about our wills. If anyone wills to do God's will, he will find out if my teaching is from God or whether I'm simply speaking from myself. What an extraordinary thing that is to say. If you want to know for certain that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, word of the Father, there's only one thing you can do, and that is come close to him honestly, ready to obey him. Not as judge over him, but as one of his creatures, sincerely looking for the truth and prepared to submit to it if you find it. Now, we've got to be upfront here and admit that that is a slightly circular argument, isn't it? The only way to find God is to start trusting God. And I don't think that's anything we need to be worried by or ashamed of. Eventually, all arguments about a final authority become slightly circular, don't they? Because there's no bigger authority that God can ever appeal to. Some circularity is inevitable, but as Don Carson, the scholar, puts it, this is not a vicious circle. It's not like some merry-go-round where you can never get on board because God has given all of us the way in already. All of us have been born with a conscience. We know deep down that some things are right and some things are wrong. We know deep down that what God says is good is good. All of us have seen glimpses of God in his world. We're without excuse, aren't we? He's revealed himself in every beautiful thing that has ever taken our breaths away. And most of all, here in John, God has sent his son into the world to come looking for us, holding out a hand. And all we have to do is listen to Jesus speak and there's a ring of truth and goodness and authenticity about everything he says, isn't there? God has given all of us a way in, a way towards him. And the only question is, will we take what we've been given? It's something the Bible teaches us again and again. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, to the one who has more will be given. Knock and the door will open. But we can't come banging on the door demanding that he shows himself on our terms. It has to be sincere. It's very tempting to come to church looking for God, but not really willing to have our wills, our hearts bent and shaped by his will. We might love to learn about theology and philosophy and the Bible. We're curious about big spiritual things. But our starting position is that I could never go along with Jesus on that particular area of my life. I'm fine for him to talk about this, but I know right now I will never submit to that. That is beyond the pale for me. There's my red line. And Jesus says, no. That won't do. If you come to me, I have all the time in the world for your doubts, your worries, your struggles, your questions, for faith, seeking understanding. But that seeking has to be sincere. 
So act on what you do know, what he's given you right now. Just try him. And the promise from Jesus is that you will come to know him more. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't take hours and hours of courses and training in Bible reading and special Christian books to learn to hear God's voice. Just try trusting him. Try obeying in one small thing. It's wonderful, isn't it? But how is it going in his Israel? Well, in verse 19, Jesus exposes the kind of looking for God that the religious leaders in Jerusalem are doing. And it's fairly easy to do that because God has given them a law through Moses. He's revealed his will. And in fact, they're very proud of that law. So is their will to do God's will? Well, not according to Jesus. Right now, these people who claim to have found God are busy plotting murder. They want to kill Jesus, the one God's whole law perfectly reflects. You see, as soon as they come into contact with what God's will actually looks like in flesh and blood, they hate it. Jesus came to this very city back in chapter 5, and he did one work, he tells them. On the Sabbath day, remember, the day for rejoicing in God's salvation, he gave a poor, broken man sitting by a pool his entire life back. And he claimed at the time that as one who is equal with the Father, that kind of saving work on the Sabbath is his right to do. And ever since that claim the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have wanted him dead. But the problem, verse 24, is that they are corrupt judges of the truth. They are not willing to look honestly at what God wants. All of them agree, for example, that God gave the circumcision law, verse 23, to point to a really important reality, a fundamental thing. And so on the eighth day of his life, every Jewish boy would have a teeny bit of their body made the way God wanted it as a sign that God had rescued them and claimed them. And if that eighth day fell on the Sabbath, then so be it. It's what God wants. His law comes first. Because that circumcision command was about his eternal, redemptive purposes, wasn't it? Well, Jesus has come On the Sabbath day, the day for celebrating redemption, and he made, not this teeny bit, he made a man's whole body the way God wanted it. A picture of the same redemption in an even bigger, more wonderful way. It was the best Sabbath keeping in all of Israel's history. The one who gave them the law had come himself, fulfilling everything his law had always been about. Because the law pulses to Jesus' heartbeat. He is God from God. It's why when we begin to live his way, we do get to know him better. His way, his law is who he is. And yet they see it. They see him fulfilling that Sabbath command. And they call him demonic. They accuse truth and love himself of law-breaking. That must be the most twisted and heartbreaking misjudgment we could ever make, isn't it? Seeing truth and love and calling it devilish. 
But do you see why Jesus brings it up? What does it show in the hearts of these religious men? They are not looking for God with a sincere desire to submit to him. In fact, rather than love and obey what flows out of God's heart, they are murderously rejecting it. The law that flowed from the Father through Moses, and more serious still, the Son who flows from the Father's heart in eternity. Now, we've done some heavy lifting there, I know, but I hope that once we've seen what this is all about, the rest of the passage will start to fall into place. Jesus has told these people what they desperately need to hear, even though they don't know it. There is a way for them to find God, but only through one who knows God. And it's verses 25 to 31 which show us that. The fundamental problem is that Jesus' own are not looking for God in a way that can ever find him. And here's the reason. They don't actually know what they think they know. They don't know what God looks like. And they desperately need one who does. Two years ago, I I brought home what I hoped would be a very dignified, very respectable, very English sort of dog, a German short-haired pointer, but he's an English dog, the sort of dog who should know his allotted station in life and how he slopped into our family. But it soon became pretty clear that what we had was something rather different to that. We had a great big lump of a dog who had convinced himself that he was one of the children. If the kids were lying in a messy heap on the floor, Shackleton would have to lie right on top of them. If they were sprawled on the sofa, Shackleton would want to be sprawled there with them like a giant, grotesque, oversized lap dog. He even started walking on two legs, I kid you not. He would stand up to open a door. You'd come downstairs and you'd find him perched upright, hugging a radiator for warmth. And then came what I think was the closest thing a dog can experience to an existential crisis. Not long after him, a real-life human baby arrived in our home, and it rocked his world. It was as if he couldn't work out what this thing was. We all seemed to think it was human. It's nappy, certainly smelt human. But the dog had convinced itself that a real-life human baby was something just like him. What on earth is this? Well, just take a moment then to enjoy the confusion in verses 25 and 6. The people of Jerusalem see Jesus Christ speaking openly and nobody daring to silence him. Remember, a minute ago, people called him a paranoid demoniac for claiming that people want to kill him. Now they're admitting it to themselves, aren't they? Hey, isn't this the guy our leaders want to kill? It's almost as if anything they say is just a smokescreen, a nonsense to avoid engaging with the truth. But they've been stunned by the way he teaches, and now they can't help beginning to wonder if deep down their authorities even know the truth about this man already. Maybe this really is the Christ. But no sooner than they ask it, verse 27, than they convince themselves it could not possibly be true because they've convinced themselves that they know 
what a Messiah is meant to look like. And he couldn't possibly be like this guy, could he? This man from backwards rural Galilee, verse 27. We know all about where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, it will be much more impressive than this. No one will know where he comes from. Isn't the irony meter creeping up already? Because even as Jesus taught in the temple earlier, they were all wondering where this man came from, how he arrived with such learning. And so in verse 28, Jesus cries out in love and mercy for this cried. Now, there are two times in this big unit of the book that Jesus is going to cry something out for the crowd. It's a sign when he does that, that we desperately need to hear what he has to say. This is something urgent and full of compassion. He cries out, you know me and you know where I come from, or at least you all think you do. But in fact, I have not come from myself. Do not be so sure of what you think you know. Do you see what he's saying? You know my earthly origins, but there is much more to me than that. I am not of myself. I am of my Father, him who sent me. I come from truth itself, reality itself. And it turns out, verse 28, that as much as you think you know, you do not know him at all. God is a stranger to you. You see, if you come to God having already made up your mind about what you think he should be like, then when you meet him, he will be a complete stranger. Here is the people God has prepared for 2,000 years to meet his son, revealing himself to them in love. They had the whole Bible to tell them what he's like. And yet they haven't understood that his law was all about his love and redemption. Jesus told them that the only way to seek God was to come willing to submit and obey to all that flows from his heart. It turns out they don't actually know that heart at all. God is a stranger to them. And so now here is his son, the one who eternally flows from that heart, verse 29, coming full of grace and truth, and they can't recognize him. Any more than my dog knew what to do with a real human baby. What is that? God the Son, though, is the only one who can tell us what God is truly like right in himself. God preaching God in love for a lost world and the response is to arrest him. If we come to church with a picture then in our heads of what we think God should be like, what we think love should look like, what we think fairness should look like, the danger is we will never accept that this man, this Jesus, is how the true God would reveal himself. I reckon the crowds would have been very, very happy with the kind of Jesus his brothers wanted him to be, one who comes dazzling with miracles, one who never says anything uncomfortable or challenging about our sin and our culture. But the real Jesus just isn't like that. It means that if you're an I'd-like-to-think-God-is kind of person, friend, you will never find the true God. Because 
the real Jesus is so good, so uncaring about his own glory, so truthful that he's going to challenge all of us in ways we don't like. Coming as an I'd like to think kind of person, that isn't coming humbly, is it? Ready to submit in love to who he really is. There is a way to find God, but only through one who knows God. And crucially, verses 32 to 36, the time to meet him is running out. I wonder how comfortable you are with the idea that there can be a wrong way to look for Jesus. Maybe we think he should take all comers. But in verse 32, suddenly they are looking for him again. The Pharisees hear the muttering, the confusion, and now it's time to do something about it. Up in verse 1, remember, we were reminded that they are looking for Jesus in order to kill him. It's not sincere looking. Now they do a kind of sending of their own. The father sent the son. Now they send officers, temple guards, to seize him. And you couldn't better sum up these two ways of looking for God, could you? Are you looking humbly to submit? Or are you looking proudly to seize? Looking for him on your terms. It's not that they aren't looking for God. They think they know him. But they're engaged in the wrong kind of sending and seeking. And that is what prompts this final urgent warning. Verse 33 starts with a therefore in the Greek. I presume our translators just struggle to see the connection, the link, and so they left the word out. They sent officers to seize him, and therefore Jesus said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going home to him who sent me. You see, the clock that has been ticking right from the start of this book is still running. The cross, Jesus' hour, is drawing closer and closer. And once he is lifted up in glory on that cross and he returns to his Father, Jesus Christ will be way beyond their grasp where no one can find him. Do you see then what a tragedy this is? Jesus came to his own people, to Israel who he loved. He came in extraordinary grace so that they might have the right to become children of God, to belong before anyone else, right in the heart of God's love. But all the time that we seek God our way, we push him further away from us. Until the moment when, as one theologian put it, Jesus, Israel, remove him from the world, and they destroy themselves. From here on out in the book, Jesus returned to the Father his departure from Israel, that is going to loom over the gospel like a gathering cloud. The sun on this day of extraordinary grace is already beginning to set. And it's a heartbreaking picture, isn't it? Human beings frantically looking for the God we were made for, but it's too late to find him. And yet even now, there's a kind of arrogant blindness in their words, isn't there? Almost always in John, they make this same mistake. They understand something Jesus says in earthly, worldly human terms. Where does this man think he can go? Well, we can't find him. 
After all, we know all about where he's from, don't we? Where can an untaught Galilean have to return to that's out of our reach? Perhaps he means he'll go to the Greeks, those Jews scattered abroad, and teach them. Do you see how even now they are closing the door on God, letting the clock run out on his mercy? It's heartbreaking. And yet I wonder if you can hear how even these final words are full of grace. There's a delicious irony in their misunderstanding there, isn't there? Because who is John writing this gospel to? He's writing to the very people they thought it was so preposterous that Jesus might be talking about, that he might go and teach the dispersion among the Greeks. They live, those readers like us, on the other side of the cross in an age where Jesus has returned to his father, where he is now way out of our grasp, somewhere we could never, ever find him, not our way. And yet, even as they read this very book, Jesus is finding them. He is way out of our grasp, but we are not out of his, are we? John has written this book so that while there is still time for us, while we still have the opportunity to respond to Jesus, this son God sent can bring us home to the place our souls ache to be. There is still mercy for Israel, for us. So come humbly to Jesus while you still can. Whether you'd say you found God years ago and you know all there is to know, or whether you're here today still desperately trying to avoid what he's calling you to do, take what he's given you and be ready to say, I don't have you all figured out, Lord. But whoever you are, I will listen to you and I will love you. And I promise you'll discover that this true God is still there. This Jesus who makes broken people whole, who brings true rest and healing and goodness. He is here today holding out mercy for you. But there may not be another chance tomorrow. Let's pray. Father God, our heart breaks at this story of fellow human beings who your love has been poured out on for so long, rejecting one they thought they knew. But what a tragedy it would be if we were to make the same mistake. Thank you, Father, that the one you love from all eternity is still holding out mercy and restoration for proud people like us. Thank you that he faced his hour and went to the cross so that proud people like us could find a father. So please, Lord, would you renew our hearts and minds and wills and help us come to you not as judges over what we're prepared to accept, but as humble, forgiven sinners, ready to love and obey all that you are. For we ask it in the name of your only Son,